Amen. I invite you to be seated and to join me in prayer. Father, as we have gathered this morning, we can't help but sing. And we can't help but sing to you because you are our holy, holy, holy God who in Christ has made it possible for us to be reconciled to you. And so, God, we, we do sing, and we can't help but sing. And we know one day we will forever echo, holy is the Lord. And, Father, as we gather as your people together in this service, we pray for a couple of our members who are going to be here today for their last Sunday. We pray this morning for Daniel Chung. And we thank you that one day we will never say these goodbyes when we're forever with you. But we pray for Daniel and his family, God, as they are relocated. Thank you that they've been able to be a part of our church through their serving in the Air Force and being stationed here for these last years. And we pray especially for Daniel as he begins in his new uh, position as a chaplain, and we thank you for the opportunity that we've had over these last years to encourage him and help him as he processed that sense of your leading in his life. We pray for his family and pray that you would bless him as he serves you as a chaplain in the Air Force. And God, we pray also for Andrew and Jennifer Pellegrin, and uh, we thank you for their also being a part of our church family, members of our church through their time here as they've served in the Air Force And we pray that you would bless them as they continue to serve you in their next place. And Father, we pray for both of these that they would find a place where they can worship, where they can join a congregation of like-minded believers and grow in Christ and continue to worship you and to know you and to make you known where they are. God, thank you again for these members of our congregation. And Father, as we pray this morning also, we pray for the world and we pray for the church. Father, we pray for the world particularly because of the urgent physical and spiritual need that exists throughout the world. And particularly, we think of the many places where the Delta variant of COVID is spreading rapidly. We particularly think of India and we particularly think of Indonesia. And personally, I think of Indonesia because my daughter and her family aren't going to be able to go back as soon as they had hoped for the school year. And so we pray for this part of the world, for all of Southeast Asia, and for the need there. We pray, God, for you to bring relief to the suffering and to the sickness and to the deaths. And Father, we as your people care about all suffering. And so we lift up, especially the people in that part of the world in these days. And Father, we also pray for the church. We pray for the church here and throughout this nation and throughout the nations. We pray, Father, for the church as Jesus prayed for the church in his priestly prayer. We pray for truth, holiness, unity, and mission. God, we pray that this church and that your church throughout the nations would be marked by truth. That we would be united in our beliefs with the apostles and that we would be devoted, and that your church would be devoted to the apostles' teaching as the early church was. 
according to Acts. God, help us to be people of truth, particularly proclaiming Jesus who was the way and the truth and the life and the one who alone people can come to you through. Father, we also pray for holiness in your church, that we as a church would be united with the Father and the Son as Jesus prayed, and therefore share in life through the Son with the Father and by the Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, to be different from the world and help us to live a life that glorifies you and remind us that the Holy Spirit produces love, joy, and peace as we are transformed and made holy as well as the other fruit of the Spirit. And God, would you make that more and more the case for this congregation? We also pray for unity, God, in your church. We pray that we would have unity with each other because we believe the truth and because we are growing in holiness and striving to know Christ. And Father, finally, we pray for our church and for your church throughout this world in terms of our mission. God, our unity is so that the world might believe according to Jesus' prayer. And so we pray that we would go and that we would share the good news of the gospel so that people might come to believe. Help us to be united in world missions, to take the gospel to those who've never heard. Father, we know that the disciples of Jesus were promised just before Jesus ascended that they would receive the gift of the Spirit, and in so doing, they would receive the power to be witnesses for Christ to the ends of the earth. Father, we care about all suffering, but we care especially about eternal suffering. And we desire to share the only message that can save people from their sins. And so, Lord, we lift up the world and the church to you this morning. And we thank you particularly this morning for reaching and teaching for that ministry for the opportunity to hear about it today. God, enable us as your church to engage. And I pray that if it's your will, that this ministry might be a partner with us and help us to participate in the cause more fully and more consistently and faithfully in the cause of world missions by forming direct partnerships with like-minded churches and believers throughout the world. God, thank you for Ryan. Thank you for bringing him here. Use him now as he preaches your word And as we hear your word preached, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Just a a quick announcement. I've been deputized. It's 5 p.m. tonight, not 6 p.m. If you come at 6 p.m., you're going to miss all of the, the juicy details so 5 p.m. tonight, looking forward to spend time with you. Tanner, that was just an adjustment, I guess, recently. So um, I wanted to say a special thank you to your elders for uh, the invitation to come and preach God's word to you today. Uh, it's a tremendous privilege to be with you all. Um, it was with great sorrow that we said goodbye to the Blossers just prior to COVID-19 starting. And uh, it's been good to be with them this weekend. You all have a very special family serving amongst you. Over the last year, if you're anything like me, you've spent some time binge-watching on various streaming platforms. I think my favorite show from this pandemic period was the Eco Challenge Expedition Race. 
that was hosted by Bear Grylls. Self-described as the world's toughest race, it started with 66 teams, each made of four people, and these teams came from 30 different countries. They lined up in Fiji, and they set off on an incredibly insane race that traversed multiple terrains over multiple days. Contestants sailed outriggers. They went on whitewater rafts and paddleboards. They traveled on mountain bikes, through jungles and over mountains. Some of them swam, well, all of them swam nine miles in hypothermia-inducing waters. The best teams don't really sleep. The worst teams, and worst comparatively, they're still incredible. The worst teams, they quit pretty quickly. Each team, in some sick way, chose to suffer just by entering into this race. One slip of a foot could lead to a team retiring because of a compound fracture halfway up a mountain. There were teams that got stuck in canyons, teams that got lost, teams that got serious infections. The whole thing is insanity. The winning team finished in just over 141 hours and just less than six days of close to nonstop racing, six days. 22 teams didn't even complete the race, so a third of the teams, they didn't even finish. The last team to finish came in 44th place. It took them just over 11 days or 125 hours after the winners won the race. I was hooked as I watched these incredible athletes push their bodies to the most extreme limits. Their stories were compelling. The most amazing story to me was this man who had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. His name was Mark Macy. He was a world-famous elite racer. This was going to be his last race, and his son, who was an elite racer, the top of his game, could have won in the, the top three places, decided to forego placing in, in a medal position and race instead with his dad. It was an incredible story. Uh, to watch this father and son traverse their way through this incredible race. There's a number of times I tried to put myself in the shoes of the contestants, and I asked myself if I would have given up where they pressed on. Most of us in this room would not sign up for an eco-challenge, myself included. But we all do suffer. It's promised. Physical suffering, spiritual suffering. We're surrounded by it. Our passage this morning was written in the midst of a time of incredible suffering in David's life. Our text is Psalm 63. If you've got a pew Bible, it's found on page 479. Uh, please turn with me there. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. We see by the inscription that this is a psalm of David. And there are two different times in David's life that commentators think that David could have written this psalm. The very first was when David was fleeing from Saul during his persecution of David that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 20 to 31. And specifically, some commentators uh, point to the location within Judah's territory in chapters 22 to 24. The second potential time of writing was during David's flight from his son Absalom that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 15 to 18. I think that this psalm was most likely written during that second period of time when David was fleeing from his son. This was also most likely the same general wilderness area that we read that Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in, Matthew 4. The area was and still is quite dry and it's arid. It's rocky and rough terrain and it's not conducive to life. It's a bleak place that is a perfect escape for a king who's fleeing from his murderous son. Absalom sought to depose his father. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, 13 to 14, we read that a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee. Or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David flees Jerusalem and he heads to the Judean wilderness with his son in hot pursuit. That's the likely setting that this psalm is written in. I believe that the main point of this text is that having a proper perspective of God's steadfast love and faithfulness gives us nourishment for today and hope for tomorrow. I'll say that again slower. I believe that the main point of this text is that having a proper perspective of God's steadfast love and faithfulness gives us nourishment for today and hope for tomorrow. So I'm going to give three points of application as we read through this text together, and those three points are going to be my outline for you this morning as you follow along. First, seek the Lord in the wilderness. Seek the Lord in the wilderness. Second, praise the Lord with a proper perspective. Praise the Lord with a proper perspective. And third, cling to the Lord with assurance. Cling to the Lord with assurance. All right, number one. Seek the Lord in the wilderness. We see David doing this in verses 1 to 2. We see him seeking God personally. Oh God, you are my God. He goes straight to the Lord, and as he addresses God as my God, he's referring to him as his personal, personal God. God does not feel absent to him in this moment. David's on the run. His world is crushing down on him. He doesn't complain about God's absence. He doesn't cry out, where are you, Lord? I thought we had a deal. You promised to bless me and establish my throne forever, and now my son is seeking to kill me. Before going any further in his prayer, 
David states, God, you are my God. There's a personal relationship here. God does not seem to be far away to David. He's near. David wrote elsewhere in Psalm 119, verse 151, You are near, O Lord, and all of your commandments are truth. Before he goes on in this wilderness moment, David is reminded that he is seeking his God. His God who made a covenant with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The God who reminded David in that covenant, I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And the God that promised David that I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. David is praying to the God who made a personal covenant with him. Christian, we can also seek the one true God who made a covenant with us. Because of the work of Christ, we have a new covenant that is greater and more excellent than the one that God made with the people of Israel in Exodus. We know this according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. We have a covenant mediated by Jesus himself that allows us to know the Lord personally. He has put his law into our minds. He has written them on our hearts. He is our God and we are his people. And so when we address him, we can pray to him personally as recipients of that covenant. We also see David seeking God earnestly. In other versions, earnestly is translated as early because the word used here is related to the word for dawn. So someone who's earnest and diligent in their work is someone who wakes up early to get after it. In the midst of his present suffering, David knew that the necessary response was to seek God. As soon as he rose from his bed, his thoughts would be on the Lord. It was on the forefront of his mind. It was his only hope. If this psalm was written during his flight from Absalom, David's sin was the root cause of his present problem. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I'm faced with the consequences of my sin that I want to run and hide from the Lord, as if that's something that's even possible. We're reminded of the futility of trying to hide from God in Jeremiah chapter 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So while David is hiding from Absalom, he's seeking the Lord earnestly. His past actions have led to his present circumstances. David doesn't wallow in sorrow. He doesn't hide in shame. Instead, he runs to the Lord. Christian, perhaps you are in a wilderness today because of the consequences of your sin. You're feeling the present effects of isolation and lowliness that comes as a result of your sin. Rather than hiding from the Lord, which again is impossible, seek him earnestly. Or perhaps today you're in the wilderness because of the sin of somebody else. Or you might be dealing with the wilderness of a very difficult medical diagnosis or the death of a loved one. The remedy for your current need is the Lord. And here in Psalm chapter 63, 
we're reminded of the diligence and earnestness with which we need to seek him. You're famished. Life is hard. You're feeling crushed by all sides. And what is your response going to be? Do you rise every day with regret? Or do you rise up every day with the same earnestness of someone living through a physical famine whose first thought is, how am I going to put food on my table today? In the midst of intense physical and emotional suffering, David is seeking God earnestly. Finally, we see that David is seeking God desperately. Look for a second at the words that David uses in verse 1. He said, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Again, David is writing this in the wilderness. He's feeling the effects of being in a dry and weary land with no water. And he's saying, Lord, I'm in a wilderness. I'm spiritually dry and weary, Lord, and I am thirsty. I'm so hungry that I can faint. I'm delirious and I need some nourishment. David's writing this during a great time of physical need, but he recognizes that his greatest need in this moment is not physical, it's spiritual. And he's desperate from the nourishment that he knows that can only come from God. See, I've never raced in an eco-challenge. You might be able to tell that by looking at me. Tall guys usually don't last long in those types of races. But I did run in a marathon about 10 years ago. It was the Disney Marathon. And I tell you, running a marathon makes you thirsty. I had a belt around my waist with four little bottles filled with Gatorade, electrolyte-infused Gatorade, but it didn't last long before that Gatorade was depleted. My body was weary, and there were long stretches of roads throughout Disney World that really felt like a concrete-laden wilderness. There were water stations that were spread throughout the race, and each of these had dozens of volunteers that held out cups of waters for the runners as they ran by. When you're slow like me, it takes a while to get to the next water station. And there was this phenomenon that I noticed every time that we approached a station. See, most people wanted the very first cup of water that was held out by the volunteers, even though there were dozens of people also holding out bottles of water. And there was these miniature races that would creep up every time we got close to that water station. As I reflect on that, I think it refers to the single-mindedness, it speaks to the single-mindedness of someone who is weary and dry and in need of water. There was a desperation there for a second because our minds weren't comprehending that there was plenty of water in reserve. We were desperate and thirsty, and some of us, personally speaking, felt like fainting. Friends, are you desperate for the nourishment that only comes from God? In life's wildernesses, do you seek him desperately? What exactly causes us to desperately seek God? Well, I fundamentally believe that our desperation is fueled by an understanding of the nourishment that comes from what or who is at the end of our search. Marathon runners don't strive for the next water stop because they're curious about whether or not water 
will quench their thirst. They're desperately seeking the next water stop because they're precisely aware of the nourishment that's going to come with that water. David knew what he was seeking for. And he was desperately seeking for God because he knew of the spiritual nourishment that comes only from the Lord. In verse 2 we read, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David had already gazed upon God's power and glory. As David enjoyed communion with God, he knew that it was the source of his greatest joy. It wasn't food or water that David was ultimately looking for. He wasn't looking for deliverance from his current circumstances. What he wanted most was God's presence. He wanted to commune with God, to behold his power and his glory, as he had done in times past. Because he knew that the joy that he would receive as he beheld God's power and glory would be immense. David is seeking for the Lord in the wilderness. He's seeking him personally, he's seeking him earnestly, and he's seeking him desperately. And he's doing so because he knows just how satisfying the Lord is. In the next portion of the passage, we're going we're to watch now and see how David fuels his pursuit of God's presence. Point number two, praise the Lord with a proper perspective. Praise the Lord with a proper perspective. Notice how David's perspective informs his worship. In verse three, David writes, your steadfast love is better than life. In the midst of an actual wilderness, in a time when David is literally fleeing for his life, David recalls that God's love is worth more than life itself. It's better to cease to exist than to go on without God's love. David knew that. He had a number of examples of God's love towards him. See, God faithfully protected him while Saul was trying to kill him. God had lovingly forgave David for the murder of Uriah. He had blessed David with an incredible kingdom. In his love, God made a covenant with David. David saw God's love displayed all throughout the law. And we read his love for that law and the law-giving God in Psalm 119. Often we feel the worth of something as we prepare to lose it. I don't know if you've noticed that. When you're faced with a cancer diagnosis and a shorter life expectancy than what you thought you had, you realize the value of each day that you have in a brand new way. It's perspective. David was running from his son through wilderness, and he didn't know if each passing day would be his last day. It probably brought a new perspective on the meaning of life. And David's response wasn't to count his days. It wasn't to plead with God to give him another month or another year. Instead, he properly acknowledged that God's love is not defined by our present circumstances. David's perspective was informed by God's faithfulness in the past, the present, and the future. In verse 7, David is reminded that God has been his help in the past. In verse 8, David is reminded that God's right hand upholds him in the present. In verses 9 to 11, David is reminded of God's promises of justice in the future. 
Again, look at the perspective. Verse 7, he's reminded of God's help in the past. Verse 8, he talks about how God is upholding him in the present. In verse 9 and 11, he's looking forward to future promise fulfillment in the future. This proper perspective then fuels David's worship. He writes, my lips will praise you. His dry and his chapped lips, longing for a refreshing drink of water. Those lips, they're going to praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. I don't know if that's going to be today, God, or a week or a month or a year, but as long as I live, I'm going to praise you. He says, in your name, I will lift up my hands. They're weary. They're bruised. They've been cut by rocks as I've been crawling through the wilderness, but I'm going to lift them. The people of Israel would sing the words of Psalm 134, verse 2, as they made up their way to Jerusalem for the feasts. It's one of the Psalms of Ascent. It says, lift your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And now David is in a wilderness. He's far from Jerusalem. And he's saying, God, with whatever strength I have left in my hands, I'm going to lift them in worship to you. In verse 5, he says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. It had probably been a while since David had had uh, the ability to enjoy fat and rich food. You can only imagine how he was in the wilderness, how hungry he was, and the cravings that he had for comforts of Life and the days have gone by. And that's his point of reference for how he will be nourished and satisfied as he feasts on the presence of God. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat foods and rich foods. In verses 5 and 6, he commits to praising the Lord as he lies down and meditates on the Lord in the watches of the night. This phrase, watches of the night, referred to the night that was divided into three separate periods that would be assigned to different people to watch over a military camp or a city. As David put his head down after a weary day on the run from Absalom, he said he's going to praise the Lord with joyful lips as he remembers the Lord and his faithfulness. During the night watch, David's going to meditate on the Lord. He's acutely aware of the circumstances as he stays up at night to watch over his camp of political refugees, and he's committed to meditating on the Lord at that time. He's not fretting. He's meditating on the Lord. In verse 7, Paul recounts, uh, sorry, um, David recounts God's faithfulness when he writes, you have been my help. He's not saying, hey God, I remembered that one time where you helped me. He's saying, you have helped me, and you are helping me. You're the God who constantly and consistently helps me. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Again, he has a proper perspective. As a young eagle is shielded by its parents' wings from those who would try to harm it, so we are shielded by the Lord from those who would seek to harm us. Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In verse 18 of chapter 8 of Romans, Paul models a proper perspective when he writes this. 
He writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. At the beginning of this chapter, in verse 8, sorry, chapter 8, starting at verse 1, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteousness, righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Friend, are, are you in a wilderness? Are you wondering how you can get some perspective in order to fuel your praise for the Lord? Feast on Romans 8. We see what God has done for us in Christ. We are reminded of the glory that will be revealed to us. At the end of this chapter in Romans, we're reminded that nothing absolutely nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sword. Ensure that you have a proper perspective. Christian, remember God's faithfulness to you. He saved you. He sustains you. He secures you. Praise the Lord with your weary lips. Lift up holy hands. Remember his faithfulness when you lie down at night. When you're awoken in the middle of the night and you're trending toward despair, meditate on him. His steadfast love is better than life itself. Point number three, cling to the Lord with assurance. Our third and final application is this. Cling to the Lord with assurance. David writes in verse 8 of Psalm 63 that his soul clings to the Lord. He's not grasping for the Lord. His fingers aren't slipping. There's a clear image that I thought of while I was reflecting on this, this verse. You might think of a rock climber clinging to a hold on an indoor climbing wall. I thought of my youngest daughter, Regan, when she sees a dog. See, when Regan was young, we were on a friend's farm just outside of Toronto. You might have caught it in how I say out and about, but I'm a Canadian. People tend to pick up my accent. We were just outside of Toronto at a farm with our home group. A friend had brought her six-month-old golden retriever, and that dog thought that Regan, who was at the time maybe two years old, was the perfect friend to play with. The problem was that Regan ran from the dog, who thought it was such great fun that it leapt on her and Regan fell to the ground. And it took us a few seconds to run over and get the dog off of Regan, but that was long enough to scar Regan for her life. Now, when Regan sees dogs, big dogs, small dogs, German Shepherds, Yorkshire Terriers, Regan doesn't like dogs. And when she sees a dog, she transforms into an Olympic-quality high jumper. She leaps into my arms. 
She wraps her arms and her legs around me and she clings on tight. And my arms uphold her. See, Regan's arms and legs are going to tire in time. And there's a reason that she doesn't jump into my son's arms. Her survival instinct causes her to cling to the person who is most likely to uphold her from danger, her dad. See, we shouldn't cling to the Lord like an indoor rock climber holding on to some hold while we're secured by a rope that's belayed in several locations. We should cling to the Lord like a frightened child who knows that the safest place in the world is that moment when she's in her daddy's arms. David knew he needed that type of security. That's why he acknowledges that he clings to the Lord whose right hand upholds him. See, David's security wasn't ultimately rooted in his clinging. His security was ultimately rooted in the person that he was clinging to. He knew that his physical strength was going to wane completely. He knew that his strength and his willpower was insufficient to hold him secure. He knew that he needed the sovereign creator whose footstool is the earth, who created the universe with his words and holds it together. He needed his creator to uphold him with his right arm. Brothers and sisters, we are incapable of holding ourselves secure. If it was up to us, we would eventually lose out on the promises of God because we cannot hold on tight enough. David is acknowledging that while he clings to the Lord, his ultimate security is his sovereign God's strength, his omnipotent God's strength. We read all about this power all throughout the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 10, 12 to 13 says that it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of water in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, acknowledges God's sovereign power to place rulers in positions of authority. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says that he upholds the universe by the words of his power. Friend, hear that. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And surely he will uphold us as we cling to him in our wilderness moments. Just look at the assurance that David has here. He's on the run for his life. He's in a wilderness. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's worn out. And he could have chosen to be angry with God. He could have chosen to wallow in his sin that had led to his son's rebellion against him. But no, he's seeking the Lord. He's earnestly and desperately seeking him because he knows that God's love is better than life. He knows that it's steadfast, even when his son's own love is not. He knows that the Lord's presence will satisfy him more than food or water. God's love is steadfast and better than life, and it's better than the life that he feels that is slipping out of his hands at this very moment, and he's clinging on to the Lord. He's reminded of God's faithfulness in the past. He knows God's faithfulness in the present, and he has complete and utter confidence in the fulfillment of God's 
promises in the future. We see that assuredness in the final three verses of this psalm. David refers to those who seek to destroy his life, and he speaks of God's faithfulness to destroy them who are pursuing him. Look at these words. David writes, they shall go into the depths of the earth. That means that they're going to be buried below the earth. He says, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. Those who sought to kill David would die by the sword. He says, they shall be a portion for jackals. And by this he means that his enemies would be torn apart and eaten by wild animals. He says, the mouths of the liars will be stopped by the sovereign God who has the power to hush and quiet the loudest of liars. David possessed incredible confidence in the justice that God would bring against his enemies, and he was assured that God's promises would be fulfilled in the future. He proclaims that the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult. None of these things are maybes. All of them are shalls. Church, just like David, we can have assurance in the promise-fulfilling power of God. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Listen to this promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's a promise that we can have assurance in. See, we're not promised a life that's free from suffering. We, each one of us, are going to have wilderness moments in life. Again, let's look at Romans 8, this time verses 16 to 18. Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What a promise. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Promised righteousness, promised glorification, how can those of us in the wilderness have the spiritual strength and stamina to seek the Lord? How do we worship him in our most desperate times with a proper perspective? Look at Romans 8:26. It says, "Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That is a promise that we can cling to. Helped by the Spirit in our weakness, knowing God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus, our Savior. We can cling to the Lord with complete assurance because of the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness, because of Jesus' works, because we were given the Spirit to help us in our times of weakness. 
So how do we cling? Well, I want to give you five practical steps to take, that you can take to cling to the Lord when you're in the wilderness. Five practical steps. Number one, ask the Lord for the strength to hold on to him. We have just read how the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. So ask the Lord for strength. Number two, feast on the word of God and be nourished by it. Feast on the word of God and be nourished by it. The word of God should be a constant part of our diet. But friends, the neglect, to neglect the word of God in our most, uh, our most dire circumstances is just utter foolishness. It would be just as insane as David in a wilderness having a massive banquet ready for him with the richest and fattest foods and him just ignoring it while he was hungry and famished. For us to starve ourselves from the word of God when it is just there for the eating of it is foolishness. Feast on God's word and be nourished by it. Number three, you're already practicing this. Gather with your church family. If it's physically possible in times of physical suffering included, it's in the gathering of the local church that we have the greatest opportunity to bear each other's burdens. Listen to the word of God being preached What a foolish thing it would be to neglect to listen to the preaching of God's word in your time of darkest and deepest need. So gather with your church family. Number four, sing. You sing well. I heard it this morning. About two years ago, I remember a specific time where some very dear friends of mine had just suffered a miscarriage. And I remember distinctively the Sunday morning after that had been announced to the church where we all gathered together in the church and we sang that song, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. And my friend and his wife stood there, tears streaming down their face in the fourth or fifth row, and the church cried with them. We bared each other's burdens. That helps us cling to the Lord in our times of suffering when we gather together with our congregation and we sing. Number five, Tell others that you're clinging to the Lord. John Piper wrote this. He said, God is most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in him. There's something about suffering, physical suffering, that makes the world stop and watch Christians. Uh, Three years ago, four years ago now, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it was a time of being in the wilderness with my family. It's incredible how many people stopped and watched our family as we suffered through that time. People who would never have let me sit down and explain the gospel to them prior to my diagnosis were more than happy to have me share about God's goodness and faithfulness. God is most glorified by us as we are most satisfied in him. So tell the world that you're clinging to Jesus. There is nothing to be ashamed of in that. Glorify him in that. So perhaps you're in a wilderness and you don't have a relationship with God like the one that I've discussed today. You've never placed your faith in this steadfast, loving God that you've heard of this morning. His love that caused him to send his one and only son, Jesus, to earth. His love that compelled that son to be pierced for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities, to be chastised to bring us peace, to be wounded so we can be healed. Friend, 
The Bible is very clear that your sin has made a separation between you and God. And that is the greatest wilderness that you will ever, ever, ever face. If you're not a follower of Christ, you cannot receive the nourishment that I've received this morning unless you recognize that you need it. And you come to place your faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus entered the worst wilderness of all time when he gave his life on a cross so that all who would believe in him would not perish in the eternal wilderness of the consequences of their sin. God's steadfast love compelled him to do that, and he promises you life if you place your trust in him. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead three days after his death will uphold you, and it will sustain you forevermore. Christian, perhaps you find yourself in a wilderness today. As I close today, I want to encourage you with Paul's words at the end of Romans 8. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Seek the Lord in the wilderness. Seek him personally. Seek him earnestly. Seek him diligently. Praise him with a proper perspective and cling to him with assurance. Let's pray. Lord, as we conclude uh, today, Lord, I pray that you would minister by your spirit to those of us in this room who are struggling uh, through wilderness periods in our lives, Lord, physical, spiritual suffering. God, we pray that as we celebrate um, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper this morning, God, we pray that those who watch Christians partake in this ordinance, Lord, you would open their eyes and their hearts to understand the sacrifice that was made so that their sins could be forgiven, Lord. And Lord, we pray that we would glorify you in our suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.